But here's the deal. Every Christmas movie has basically the same, the same general issue going on. It's not always the same plot unless you're watching Hallmark Channel. Then it is the same plot every single movie. But it always revolves around loneliness. I mean, there's somebody that's lonely. I mean, the, the Grinch is lonely and, uh, and just needs community. Um, John McClane, he flies across the country to see his family, right? In Christmas Vacation, it's, it's this guy, Clark, who's, who's got his family around him, but just wants the rest of the family to come in because he wants to celebrate Christmas together with some people. Like, wh- whatever movie it is, that there's always, always this feeling of loneliness that, that they're trying to solve and uh, resolve it in all different ways, just depending on the movie. But here's the deal. I think, especially during this time of year, loneliness is something that we can all relate with at differing levels. And it doesn't even really matter why. I mean, it's, it's for all different reasons, right? I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm single, and for a lot of single people, this is a tough time of the year. You know, everybody's going back with their families, and, and there, can be, there can be a struggle, and, and, and we can wrestle with uh, feeling alone, feeling lonely, wanting somebody to be with over Christmas. Um, but I know a lot of married people that struggle with loneliness, too. Um, who just don't feel like they have that, those people in their life uh, that, that just give them those relationships that we feel like we need. You know, Time Magazine came out with an article last March, and somewhere around 26% of adults in America feel serious loneliness. And honestly, if we were to be really honest, I would guess that the number is actually even higher than that. Um, just we don't like to admit we're lonely. We, we don't like to admit that we need something, even if we're not totally sure what it is, partly because that's, that's the culture that we live in and the culture that we've grown up in is this culture that, that we kind of fix our own problems, that, that we pull ourselves up, that, that we figure out how to be strong on our own. And once we figure that out, then it's okay to go out and like share and, and make friends with people. But what's funny is when I started reading the Christmas story, when, when Grant talked to me a few weeks ago and gave me the topic and said, you know, hey, I want you to talk about Christmas and loneliness. I was amazed at how much loneliness shows up in Scripture and how much loneliness just permeates the entire Christmas story. So this year, we're doing a series called Who Needs Christmas? And, and we're basing it off of Isaiah 9. And if you know prophecy about Jesus, Isaiah 9 is, is kind of one of the go-tos. It's maybe the most famous verse about this coming Messiah. But it's a chapter that's written to a people that's incredibly lonely. See, Isaiah was this prophet, and he prophesied about 700 years before the birth of Christ. And he was a prophet in the country of Judah. And, and there was David and Solomon who were these these great kings who, who had Israel being this world superpower. And, and that was kind of the, the, the heyday for ancient Israel. And they had this strong military, this booming economy. And then Solomon had a son, Rehoboam, who honestly was just an idiot. And, and the kingdom kind of fell apart during his reign. And so after that, there were, the kingdom of Israel was divided up into two kingdoms. There was this larger kingdom up north called Israel. And there was this smaller kingdom down south called Judah. In Judah, that's where Jerusalem was, and there were only two tribes of Israel there. And then Israel, the the bigger kingdom up north, had ten tribes. For the next 200 years or so after Solomon, uh, these two countries were were sometimes at war each other, sometimes had kind of uh, an uneasy alliance, uh, but together they kind of faced all of the outward threats. But about 750 B.C., the Assyrian Empire became a world power. 
And, and the Assyrian Empire started expanding uh, from the Middle East. And they came through and they conquered Israel. And so Isaiah, he's a prophet in the country of Judah. This is a tiny country to start with. And their only ally has just been conquered by the world's superpower. So Isaiah is trying to communicate God's hope to people. And, and Judah is this country where in the last 200 years, they've gone from being a, really a world superpower, a country to be reckoned with, to now they're, they're really nothing. And they've just lost their only ally. And they're watching this giant Assyrian army that's just slowly taking over the known world. And they're watching this happen, knowing that when Assyria turns their sights on Judah, there's absolutely nothing that Judah can do to stop. In the middle of that, this prophet Isaiah comes. And he starts talking about how there's going to be this Messiah. There's going to be this deliverer. And we get to Isaiah 9, and this is what he says. You guys can read along if you want. It'll be up here on the screen. Isaiah 9, we're going to read the first seven verses. This is what Isaiah says. He says, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. Usually he'd refer to Judah, to Judah as, as her or as a she. So for Judah, there will be no gloom. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Basically, God's going to fix this at some point. The people who walked in darkness, they've seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his professor, you have broken these as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, for every garment rolled in blood, they will be burned as fuel for the fire. Verse 6, this is that verse about the Messiah. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So Isaiah comes in and basically says, look guys, things don't look good. There's this giant army that's eventually going to turn its sights towards us. This is what you need to know when you're lonely, is that God is going to fix it. Because 700 years before Jesus, Isaiah says, Jesus is going to come. There's this Messiah that's going to be born. See, Christmas from the very beginning was for a lonely people. But then let's fast forward 700 years now, and let's look at some of the people. And in your bulletin, sorry, my head got really warm. My, my head gets cold outside, but here it's warm. This is the first blank on your bulletin. Is every key human character from the first nativity was a lonely person. When we look at everybody in the nativity story, every single person was a lonely person. And let's look at that. Let's break it down a little bit. So first we have Mary. Now Mary, we, we don't know a huge amount about Mary, but we know she was this godly girl. We know best estimate that she was young, probably somewhere between 13 and 16 maybe. She, she lives in this small town, um, in this small Jewish town, and, and ancient Israel was extremely conservative anyway, and then you go to a small town in ancient Israel, and it's even more conservative, and so you, 
you don't do things like get pregnant outside marriage. I mean, not like it was rare, it just, it didn't happen. And it's a small town, and so that means that there's no secrets. I mean, best guess is that, is that the town she grew up in had probably somewhere between a few hundred and maybe a thousand people, just because the land around there wouldn't support more than that. And, and so there are no secrets there, and Mary's this young girl. She's engaged to be married to this guy, Joseph. Joseph is probably a little bit of an older man, has an established business, because that's generally how marriages worked back in the day. And so she's kind of got her future set. I mean, he's got a trade. He's a carpenter. So she kind of knows, like, hey, my future has stability. There's going to be a place for me. I'm going to be taken care of. I'm going to have a place where we're going to be able to raise kids together. She goes from that to all of a sudden she gets a visit from this angel. Gabriel shows up and says, you know, hey, Mary, you, you were blessed by God. God's really impressed with you, and you're going to bear a son. And he's going to be the savior of the world, which is great. And, and Mary loves that. But then... But then she has to start dealing with this pregnancy. And after a few months, she's this young girl in the small town, and she's starting to show, right? And everybody in town starts talking about her. And it, it doesn't really matter. I mean, you know, if you're in this small town, and, and this girl that everybody knows, and that you know is engaged to this guy, Joseph, everybody knows that she's pregnant. And she comes up, and, and I don't know if she communicated to people or not. I don't know if she talked to people and said, hey, like, I, it's okay, because God came and told me that he was going to do this, and he was going to miraculously impregnate me. And everybody in the village is like, right, Mary, that's, that's how it happened. I mean, you, I, I can't help but, but imagine that Mary was in a pretty lonely position. I mean, that, that, that job of bearing the Son of God, when, when you're a girl who's not yet married in a small town, in a culture that when people committed adultery, I mean, literally, the death penalty was a very viable option. And she's walking through this. I mean, at the point where a few months in, her family sends her off to live with her cousin Elizabeth. I think part of that was probably for her protection. So Mary, I mean, she was, she was in this lonely position. Then we have Joseph, and he's really not much, much better because he's this, he's this established guy. He's got a carpentry business. Um, we don't really know how old he is, but church tradition tells us that, that he was probably 10, maybe 15 years older than Mary. You know, he had his trade. He was probably a guy that, that everybody knew, uh, you know, that was a man of character. We know that much uh, from what God communicates to him in a dream. And he's the guy who's engaged to be married to this girl. And then she shows up pregnant. And, and we see some of Joseph's quality because his first thought is, hey, I'm going to divorce her quietly. And so I'm, I'm not going to not going to put her to death, which legally he could make a case for. Um, he's not going to shame her or embarrass her in front of the city. But he says, I, I am going to just divorce you quietly. For Joseph, he goes from thinking, again, that his future is kind of set. He's engaged to this girl, Mary. You know, again, looking at it, saying, okay, I have a family. They're going to be taken care of. I'm going to be able to take care of them, provide stability for, for my new wife, for my kids. To all of a sudden, oh, man, this girl's pregnant. But then he has a dream, too, and he finds out that it is miraculous, and it's from God. And so now he knows that, that Mary's not lying to him, that she's being honest. But really, that doesn't make it a whole lot less lonely for him, because now he's the guy in a small town that everybody's looking at and saying, either he got this girl pregnant before marriage, again, in a place where you just don't do that, or, or he's the guy that is either dumb enough or gullible enough that, like, he's going to stay with this girl even though she cheated on him. 
man, Mary and Joseph showed incredible courage just because the, the cultural pressure that would have been put on them. But then if we keep working through, one of the next characters we see is King Herod, right? And King Herod, uh, we know a little bit about him. We, we actually know more about him from outside scripture. But King Herod was this incredibly evil man. He was the, he was the, the king of that area, and, and he, he held onto the throne, um, and he was incredibly, incredibly tight-fisted about his power and about his reign. But he was also a lonely man because he wouldn't share his reign with anybody, um, not even his sons. Um, he was a guy that was all alone with this power and didn't know what to do with it. And he felt so threatened that when he heard that there was this Messiah, this king to be born, his first thought was, well, I'm going to kill him so that he doesn't threaten me. When you're at the top, especially when you're trying to hang on to power so tightly and you don't want to share it, or maybe you're incapable of sharing it, that's a lonely, lonely position to be at. The next people we see are the shepherds. And again, the shepherds, look, if you're working as a shepherd at night in Galilee, that meant that you couldn't do any other job. Uh, that meant that there was literally no other job that you were capable of doing. Uh, that was kind of a, a bottom of the totem pole. Like not, not only are you shepherd, um, you're watching sheep, but you're watching sheep at night. Um, if you've ever worked with sheep, they don't do a whole lot at night. They, they sleep. So, I mean, you're sitting around watching sheep that don't do anything. It wasn't, didn't call for like a, a high-capacity person to do that job, right? And these shepherds, they're dirty. They're around animals all the time. They're, they were kind of known as ruffians. They were, they were, again, not just the bottom of the totem pole in the workforce, but they were kind of the bottom rung of all society. They were like a half step above beggars, maybe a full step above people with leprosy. But they were, they were at the bottom, and these guys are the ones that the angels come to and say, hey, this, this is who was born. The, the, the king has been born tonight right here in Bethlehem, and I want you to go see it. See, every human person that we see in the, in the nativity story is lonely or is wrestling with loneliness, sometimes from cultural, sometimes from job reasons, but everybody is a lonely person. And they come together around this baby. See, Christmas is absolutely for lonely people. And at some level, every single one of us is or was a lonely person at some point. Now, fortunately, Jesus has a lot to say about loneliness. So this is what I want to do for just the next few minutes. There's, there's two things that we need to know. The first one is this, and I think this might be the toughest truth for us to get as Americans in the 21st century. And this is your next blank is that trying to do life alone is not courageous or strong. It's disobedient. Let me say that one more time. Trying to do life alone is not courageous or strong. It's disobedient. That blank should say, is not courageous or strong. All right? That's what the bulletin says. Man, we have this idea sometimes that, you know what? Like, I need to handle my problems by myself. I need to handle whatever it is that I'm wrestling with or struggling with. I need to figure that out on my own. And once I get fixed, then I can be part of a church, or then I can be a part of a group of friends, or then I can be a part of community. And sometimes it's, you know what, I don't want to let other people see my brokenness. And so because of that, I'm going to come in, 
and I'm going to let everybody see, like, my confident face. But I'm not going to let everybody see my struggles. Because we, we don't celebrate weakness. We generally don't, don't lift up or, or, or celebrate or affirm in each other when, when, we're, when we allow ourselves to be vulnerable or when we allow ourselves to kind of peel back the mask a little bit. And in the church, if we can't do that, then we're missing out on something huge that Jesus has for us. Listen to a couple of these scriptures. In Galatians 6, 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul is writing, and he says this. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Hebrews 10, 24 says this. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. As a church, part of what we do is, is we do life together. We support each other. We help each other. And sometimes we fall into this trap of thinking, you know what? I can go through life alone. And I'm going to let people in my church, I'm going to let my brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm going to let them help me, but only, only in, in acceptable ways. Sometimes we have a really, really hard time just admitting the brokenness that we have inside us. Honestly, I'm, I'm probably one of the worst people at that. Um, I, I love being a pastor. I, I love helping people. I love serving people. But I'm not a big fan of letting people see where I'm weak. You know, I, I like to do things really well, and I, I like just about everything that I do, I, I try and do with excellence or try to be pretty competent at. And, uh, and for me, showing weakness or showing vulnerability is something that, that I just don't do. And I had a good friend come up to me about a month and a half ago. It was actually Grant. And he came up and he talked to me. He pulled me into his office. He just had a conversation with me. When something like he sat down and he just said, Jake, I've got to tell you, you know, sometimes you come across like you have everything together and that, and that everything is good all the time. And he goes, if it is, that's, that's awesome. And I'm happy for you. But if it's not, then what you're really doing is you're coming across and saying, I'm better than everybody else because I want to help people with their stuff, but I'm not willing to open up and say, hey, this is me, church. That was a, that was a tough conversation because Grant and I, like, we've been working together for about three months, but we're still getting to know each other and still getting, getting to kind of build up that trust together. And that was this incredibly courageous conversation that, he, that I'm so glad he had with me. But man, I, I love to keep that mask on sometimes. And you know what that mask does? That mask leads to loneliness. So here's the second truth. Here's the second blank in your bulletin. Is that the cure to loneliness is relationship. Now let me clarify this, just for everybody out there. This is not, the cure for loneliness is not relationships. If you're single, that doesn't mean that if you want to cure loneliness, you need to go find somebody to date. If you're married, it doesn't mean that I need to fix everything with my spouse, and that's going to completely fix loneliness. Although it is absolutely good to have a really healthy marriage. No, the cure to loneliness is relationship. Is building deep bonds with other believers. That's what Jesus did all the way through the New Testament. Jesus gave almost zero commands 
to the individual. In fact, if, if you go through and you look at what Jesus said, as I was thinking about it yesterday, I think uh, one of the only times that Jesus gave a command to an individual is when he was talking to Simon Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. Almost every other time Jesus talked, he was talking to a group of people and he said, hey, you do this together. The Great Commission, when he's talking to his disciples, he says, go into all the world. And he's talking there, and, and when you look at the Greek, it's plural. He's talking to this group of people together. He says, you guys go and make disciples. When Jesus sends his disciples out, in Matthew chapter 10 and Luke chapter 10, he sends them out two by two. He sends them out as groups of people. When Paul writes the books in the New Testament, he writes to these churches together. And every time he writes, when he gives commands out, almost every single time, in Greek, there's a difference. Like, there's, you is the, the second person you in Greek is different than the third person you. Or, excuse me, is different than the second person plural. For all you non-technical people out there, which I was for a long, long time, what that means is when you're talking to an individual and you're saying, you do this, in English, if I'm saying, you do this, and I'm talking to you guys, I would also say, hey, you go do this. In Greek, there's two different words for when you're talking to an individual and when you're talking to a group of people. And every command in the New Testament that I can find is talking to a group of people together. Listen to some of these scriptures. This is Colossians 3, 12 through 14. This is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. John 15, John, Jesus, he's talking to his disciples. This is part of his very last speech. Is he's getting ready to be crucified the next day. He's getting ready to be arrested later that night. This is what he said. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Last one, John 17, 22 and 23. This is at the very end of Jesus' prayer, and he's praying right now, and he, he prays for his disciples, and then he prays for everybody who's going to follow after him. This is what he has to say. He says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. He's praying for unity in the church. He says, I and them, and you and me, that they, the church, may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. You see, Christmas is for the lonely because Jesus is for the lonely. Because at some level, every single one of us either is or was lonely. And if relationship cures loneliness, there's really one relationship that provides the biggest cure for loneliness. And that's the relationship that we have with Jesus. See, what Christmas is all about this Messiah, this promised one that Isaiah said, he's going to be a mighty counselor, he's going to be the prince of peace, he's going to come, his kingdom's going to reign forever. That's the first relationship we figure out. But once we get that relationship figured out, once, once we have that relationship with Jesus, 
And even if we're still trying to figure out that relationship with Jesus, Jesus' command is the way that you have a good relationship with me is you have a good relationship with each other. And it's interesting because the deeper our relationships are, the less and less we find ourselves lonely. And the more we struggle with loneliness, we find that the shallower our relationships are. That's why in today's culture of social media, people have so much social media presence and they're still so lonely. That Times article earlier, it was really an article about social media and how all these people uh, think or get fooled into thinking that they have all this real relationship because they're friends with so many people on social media. But what that really is, is it's a lie because it's a very shallow relationship that doesn't deal with the loneliness, real relationship issue that we have that only Jesus can fix. But then we continue to grow in in the church. So in your bulletin, I just have six tips. And no matter where you're at, if you're someone who is incredibly lonely right now, or if you're someone who's kind of got a handle on this loneliness thing and feel like you have a really good community, these are six tips for relationship that no matter where you're at, no matter if you're single, if you're married, if you're an extrovert, if you're an introvert, these six things will help us grow in relationship. I'm going to go through these. The first one is this. Pray for opportunities to build a relationship. Man, pray for those. Sometimes the, the best thing we can do, especially if we're in a new place, we're not someone who easily goes up and talks to people, the first thing that we can do is just take it before God and just say, hey, God, this is me. You know me, you know I'm lonely right now. You got to, I want to pray that you're going to put some people in my life, that you're going to give me opportunities to at least begin to build that relationship that I know that I need. The second one is this. Take ownership of your responsibility. Listen, don't be that person who comes to church and then goes out to the lobby and stands in the corner and doesn't talk to anybody. And if somebody greets you, just says yes, but keeps your eyes at the ground. And then walk away and think, man, nobody wants to be my friend. Take ownership of that. And, and here's the deal. We don't always get this right at the church. I mean, we have life groups, and, and, and we use our life groups to build community. We have discipleship relationships going on here. We have friendships here at the church. And we certainly don't always get it right. And, and if you've been burned or if, if, you'd have, if you've had a friendship or you've been trying to build community at the church and it just hasn't worked out yet, man, I'm sorry. I want to help with that. Come talk to me. Uh, talk to one of our other leaders after church, and we would love to get you connected with somebody. But take ownership of your responsibility there. Number three, don't give up. Be persistent. Man, when we're building community with people, when we're working on relationship, not on one relationship with someone, but when we're working on relating well to others, be persistent. Keep working at it. Number four, practice confession and authenticity. When's the last time you sat down with close friends and really confessed something. And, and not like the acceptable Christian sins. You know, I mean, we, we all have these things that, that we know we do. You know, hey, I'm, I'm sorry I gossip sometimes. Or, you know, hey, I, you know, I, 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 I made this coarse joke. And uh, I'm sorry I shouldn't have done that, but it was really funny. You know, we, we have these things that, that we've kind of culturally as the church accepted. And sometimes it, it feels good to confess those things that, that we know are are kind of okay. But when's the last time that you found yourself really struggling with something? Something that you were embarrassed to talk about or embarrassed to be struggling with? And sat down with someone and said, hey, let me just confess this. This is, this is where I'm broken at. 
That's a huge step. That's a big step. That's not an easy step. But it's an absolutely necessary step. Number five, look for someone who is more mature than you are and engage with them. Man, we have some incredible Christian men and women here at the church. And if you're wondering how to get further down this road with Christ, find somebody around and just say, hey, look, I've really either been impressed by your faith or you look like a mature Christian, or maybe you look like you're a little bit further down the road than I am. Can I buy you a cup of coffee? Can we just sit down and talk about it? I mean, do that right after service. If you want to, find somebody right here and offer to buy them breakfast. And here's the deal. If they really are a mature Christian, they'll end up buying you breakfast. So that can kind of be your litmus test, all right? Number six is look for someone who's not as far down the road as you are and help them take the next step. Because everything that we do in Christianity is we make disciples who make disciples. And if you're someone who, who you feel like Jesus has led you to a point in your life where, where you've started to figure out this community thing, where you've, you've kind of figured out how to relate well to others, how God has blessed you, and you've realized that, that loneliness is not something that you're wrestling with right now. Man, one of the very best things you can do is look around and find somebody who's lonely. And, and that doesn't mean that we, we look around and we walk up to someone and say, hey, I couldn't help but notice you look really lonely. Do you need a friend? But look for somebody who's not as far down the road as you are. And just offer to buy them a cup of coffee. Offer to buy them breakfast. Man, there's, a, there's a young man here in this, uh, in this room today who uh, about a year and a half ago, he came up to me. And he was just like, look, Jake, you're a little bit further down the road than I am. And I just want to get together and, and can we just meet up and just talk. For the past year and a half, we've had this discipleship relationship going on where we've gotten together about once a week. And uh, sometimes we get together, sometimes it'll be a half an hour, sometimes it'll be a two-hour conversation, sometimes a three-hour conversation, uh, where we'll talk about everything from school um, to family to relationships to what Jesus is doing or not doing in our life, to our devotional life. We talk through all this, and, and together we've been working further and further down this road of what it is to follow Jesus together. Because at the core of Christianity, at the core of Christmas, at the core of nativity, is this king who's going to reign forever, who came down for the lonely, to rescue us and to save us and to bring us into community with each other and with him forever. Let's pray.